Well, let me ask you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, where you'll find yourself in verse 1 of Luke chapter 8. And uh, as I always do, let me say a word of, a few words of introduction. But before I do, let me just draw your attention to these little pamphlets which are on the back table in the foyer, in the entryway. And you'll see these um, have information about our church. Some of you have asked previously if we had something like that. And so there it is. And on the back, it has a brief explanation of what we do when we gather and why we gather. So that's something that you can hand to people if you so desire, if you know someone who is looking for a church. Let me also encourage you to keep your bulletin handy. Um, and if you have a pen or a pencil, even uh, use that. We'll, we'll use that this morning in the sermon. In any case, let me begin with this, uh, these questions to you. The question I want to put to you is this, is how do we hear the word? How do we hear God's word when it comes to us, when it is preached? In what way do we receive it? That really is the question that I'm asking. And along with it, we can, might, might ask questions about things that we observe when we hear the word or when we uh, see others hearing the word. We wonder, why is it that some hear with faith while others do not? Some hear and don't understand Some hear and they understand, but they don't receive what it is that has been proclaimed when the word of God is preached or when the word of God is uh, read. And if you are uh, like I was as a child, you might even think, why is it that sometimes when I read scripture, I have no idea. And that's not just when I was a child. Sometimes it's still today and uh, this week. I have no idea what it is that I am reading. I don't understand what it is that God is showing me. Here in Luke chapter 8, we're going to get an answer to this question. And we're also going to be taught by our Lord how we ought to approach his word so that we might hear it with understanding and with faith, but not just a faith that rejoices immediately to hear the word, but the kind of faith that also holds fast to the word and results in patient fruitfulness. That's what we'll learn from Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 21 this morning. So if you found your place, would you follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse 1. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what the parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. 
And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in a time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care, then, how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside, desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother... And my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Lord, our God, our Father in heaven, we pray now, O Lord, that you would give us light and understanding so that we might become good soil. May we become good soil that receives your word implanted in our hearts, in a heart that is honest and good, that is a heart that is honest about itself, its own condition of sin, and that embraces the truth that is proclaimed to us in the gospel with good faith. May we be such a people, O Lord, as we hear your word. We pray that you would give us wisdom this morning so that we might understand your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we look at this passage, I want to give you some kind of brief introduction to the parables in general and to something uh, that we might call a broader category of wisdom literature. And for that, you can look in your, uh, in your bulletin again at Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. I'm going to give you a crash course in biblical wisdom, and uh, this passage here is going to give you some hooks to hang some of this information on. Uh, and so if you see in your bulletin, I've actually indented the passage to draw your attention to some of the things I want you to see. The reason why this is important is because Parables are a kind of wise speech. It's one sort of speech that we would expect to hear from a person who would have been understood as a wise man or what they would have called a sage in Jesus' day. Jesus very often spoke in parables and in proverbs and sometimes in enigmatic phrases and, and riddles. And he called his followers to learn as he taught, him in these, taught them in these forms to remember what he had said to meditate on these words, and to learn to interpret them. And he stands as the one who teaches them how to interpret them. The most common form of wisdom saying we see in Jesus' ministry is the parable. But we also need to recognize that when Luke and the other gospel writers use this term, parable, they tend to use it in a broader sense than we are used to. They would use the word parable to refer to things like a proverb, that short, pithy saying, something rather more like what we see in verse 16 of this chapter. And they would refer, use the word parable to refer to uh, something longer, like we see in the parable of the sower, a longer story. And these two uh, forms of literature are related in a sense that they both uh, convey a simple message, a simple lesson 
that we're to learn from so that we might learn the way of wisdom in God's world. Most of the time, however, Jesus uses those longer form parables and still it's a form of wisdom instruction whereby he teaches us how to live wisely in light of his ministry. And so I want to go back to Proverbs 1 and just help you to see some fundamental principles that inform our understanding of biblical wisdom. And we can state it in three ways. First, I want you to see that acquiring wisdom, learning wisdom, comes as we understand words of wisdom. Second, I want you to see that wisdom is founded in the fear of the Lord. Its foundational principle is the fear of God. No true wisdom comes to one who doesn't first begin here and remain there. And thirdly, I want you to see that wisdom is meant to bring us to Christ, who mediates God's wisdom to us. So you see there in Proverbs 1 in your bulletin, to know wisdom and instruction there in verse 2, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction and wise dealing in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth, let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. If we read this linearly, if we read it from verse 1 to verse 7, we see a progression to this principle of the fear of the Lord. But also I want you to see that Solomon has arranged this as a poem that guides us to the center. And we can profitably read it from the outside in. And you can see that by repetition of vocabulary and concepts in the various parallel verses that are on the same indentation in, this, in your bulletin. Look at those words, to know wisdom and instruction. You see a repetition of those same words in verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Again, look at the second half of verse 2. To understand words of insight. You see that verse 6 deals with the same subject. To understand, and it expands upon words of insight. A proverb and a saying. The words of the wise and their riddles. And then we move in one more step to receive instruction in wise dealing. This is the idea of practical wisdom. And here in verse 4 and 5, we see more ideas of giving and receiving that kind of practical wisdom that we describe as prudence and discretion and guidance. It's to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. And ultimately, then, this comes to the center of the passage where we see those three words, righteousness, justice, and equity. For this is the goal of wisdom, so that we might live our lives before God in a way that is righteous and toward others in a way that is both just and fair. And so what you see, if we were to put it by way of summary, is that biblical wisdom is about learning wisdom, not so that we can be really smart and impress people with all the knowledge we have, no, it's learning wisdom so that we might put wisdom into practice. And the means by which we get there is by learning to understand God's wisdom as he delivers it to us in his word. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon would teach us how to understand the words of the wise. But even we see it here in Luke where Jesus is teaching his disciples how to understand his wise words so that they might put into practice the things that he is teaching them, unto righteousness and justice 
and equity. And where do they begin? The same way, place that Solomon tells us to begin. The same foundation. It's the fear of the Lord. We're going to see that in this passage in Luke 2 as well. We're going to see that Luke also shows us that to understand what Christ is teaching us, to understand God's word, we need to begin with that particular expression of the fear of the Lord that responds to his word with repentance and faith. That humble love and trust, as one author has put it, that embodies the fear of the Lord. This is how we grow in wisdom. We come to understand words of wisdom, God's word, and it ultimately leads us to righteousness and justice and equity. And that is finally and fully found in the one who in himself is perfect in righteousness, perfect in justice, and perfect in all of his ways, perfectly fair in all of his dealings. As Isaiah spoke in Isaiah 11 of the Christ, he would be one who was endowed by the Spirit with wisdom and understanding, with counsel and might, with knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So unto what? So that he might judge with righteousness and equity for the meek of the earth. That's the picture that Isaiah spoke of when he looked forward to the Christ. And it's the picture that we see unfolding before us in Luke's gospel. As Luke has shown us all the way back from Luke chapter 2 when we saw him as a boy in the temple, demonstrating his great wisdom and understanding, and then later teaching in parables and riddles and demonstrating that he has the ability to perceive even the thoughts in a man's heart and mind. He is the one who is wise. And he shows himself also to be the one who is just. And he is the one who we must come to if we're to receive God's saving wisdom and the wisdom that is embodied in the secrets of the kingdom, which he will unfold to us today. And so through this crash course of wisdom, I hope that you're prepared in some way to come back to Luke and see in Jesus' parables a way in which he is making known to us the hidden and secret wisdom of God concerning his kingdom and concerning his people and concerning his word and the way in which men respond to his word in the world in which we live. So we come back to Luke chapter 8 then. And as we look at the parable of the sower, the first thing I want you to see is that Luke has framed this within a narrative. You know, we, we could take a parable out of its narrative. We could arrange all of the parables of Jesus in a book and talk about each one, one by one, in their order. But we also need to recognize that Luke and all the gospel writers, when they present the parables, they present them within a broader narrative. And though that narrative helps us to understand the importance and the purpose of this particular parable. Luke wants to draw us our attention to certain things about the parable of the sower by drawing our attention to certain Uh, certain events in Jesus' life. So we see that this passage is bounded by two very brief narratives. In chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we see that Jesus goes out through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And we're going to see as Jesus interprets the parable to his disciples in verse 10, that he is making known to them the secrets of the kingdom of God. And so we are clued into the fact that in this parable, Jesus is showing us something about God's kingdom. He's revealing some hidden thing about God's kingdom. This is part 
of that proclamation of good news of the kingdom of God. And particularly, it's going to show us how the kingdom comes through the proclamation of God's word. He's going through the cities and villages, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. But we also note in verse 1 through 3 that Luke draws our attention to those who are with Jesus. Not just the 12 who were with him, but also in verse 2, he tells us about some of the women who were there with Jesus, who were ministering to Jesus. They were women who he had freed from various infirmities. Mary Magdalene had seven demons, and the Lord had exercised those demons. Joanna, we see, who is the wife of Herod's household manager, she too had been healed of some infirmity that Luke doesn't name, and she too was a follower of Jesus. And so also Susanna, about whom we know nothing but her name. And there were many other women who were with Jesus, who were ministering to his needs out of their own wallets, out of their own possessions, providing for him. It's a surprising picture, though it shouldn't surprise us too much after what we saw in Luke chapter 7. You see, remember in Luke chapter 7, is that a woman who had been forgiven of great sins came and demonstrated great love to Jesus. And he said that her sins, which were indeed many, had been forgiven. And therefore, as a result of that forgiveness, knowing that forgiveness that she had received from Christ, she loved much. Her love was very evident. So also we see here that these women who had been freed from great infirmities, from the possession of demons and from other kinds of illnesses, these women loved Christ much because of what he had done for them. And they demonstrated it by serving him in practical ways. It's important to see this because it's, these companions otherwise would seem to us to be unlikely companions. Not only because you wouldn't expect a, a teacher in Israel at that time to be accompanied by women in, among his traveling companions, but also because of what we see at the end of this passage. Look down in verse 19. Here, Jesus' own mother and brothers come to him. His mother and his brothers came to see him, but they couldn't gain access to him through the crowd. Now, we would expect that they would be the people who would most readily have access to Jesus. They would be the people who could slice right through the crowd. They'd say, we need to talk to you, Jesus. And he'd say to whoever he's speaking to, hold on a minute. My mom and my brothers and sister are at the door. I need to see them. I need to help them. I need to answer them. That's what we would think. But that's not what we see here. They can't reach him through the crowd. And even when he's told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you, he answers, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. We saw a picture at the beginning of this passage of those who are in his close company. And here we see those who we would expect to be in his close company. And he doesn't grant them access. Not because they would never be granted access. We will find that his brothers and his sisters were part of the early church. They became followers of their older brother. And we have already seen that Mary was one who had a disposition of faith. One who believed God's word and embraced it. Nevertheless, Jesus keeps them at arm's length right now to show something to us. There is no shortcut to Christ. The only way to him is the same way for all. It is the way of repentance and faith. It is the way of hearing God's word 
and doing what he tells us to do. And in the context of Luke's gospel, we have seen that the most clear declaration of God's will, the repeated declaration of God's will, has come to us in the call to repent of your sins and believe the gospel. We saw it in the preaching of John, and we see it again and again in the preaching of Christ. We see that there are some who embrace that message, and there are some who reject that message. And the people in whose company Jesus stands... Sinners and tax collectors, these women who had been freed from great infirmities, they are the people who hear God's word and they receive it with faith, with a heart that is repentant. And so they come into his company as his disciples. And this prepares us then to look at the parable of the sower and to start to see what it's all about. We should expect that it's going to be in some way about the kingdom of God. But we should also expect that we're going to see in this passage that it is in some way about how people receive the word of God. And these two things are going to go together. So let's look at the parable now. As Jesus tells it, a great crowd is gathering. And Luke really emphasizes this fact. A great crowd was gathering. People from town after town even. People from town after town came to him. And now he speaks in a parable in a way anticipating the fact that it won't always be like this. The crowds will not always be like this. And he says, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And let's pause there for a moment. I reflect on when I was a boy, and I used to listen to my father preach, and he would preach parables like this. And at different places, we'd find that the disciples had no clue what was going on. And my first thought, my immediate thought was, they're so dense, how can they not understand? And my second thought that always followed it was, what is Jesus talking about? You see, the irony uh, was not lost on me as a boy, but um, still I thought that they were rather dense. And I think that some of us are like that too. If we stopped the passage there and had no guide, we'd say, how are we to interpret this? Well, surely we know enough about Jesus' ministry to this point that he can't be teaching us about agricultural practices. The people of this time, they would have readily understood the imagery that he was creating. It's hard to know whether or not they would have seen what the sower was doing as reckless or a thoughtful practice. Maybe he goes out in the field and he's sowing his seed to get the task done quicker. And he's wasting three out of every four seeds. Or maybe he's going out into the field and he's getting the task done quickly. And despite the fact that not every seed goes to use, the seed that does land in the good soil, it's exceedingly fruitful. It produces a hundredfold, Luke says. And the reason why he draws our attention to that hundredfold is because that was a, it was not unheard of, but it was really a remarkable bounty. It was a great yield from the seed that fell in good soil. But along the way, some of the food falls in different places, and it, a seed that falls in different places, and it can't grow. It can't produce fruit. It can't draw moisture from the uh, soil because it's not in good soil. And so the people would have recognized this, whether they saw it as reckless or saw it as a thoughtful practice. They would have said, that makes sense. I can see the picture in my mind. And yet they would have been unable to understand it, to put it together, 
And Jesus' words, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, seem to suggest that. We see this statement in the Gospels quite frequently. About uh, a dozen times, a a little less than that, but always on the lips of Jesus. He's saying, let him who has ears to hear, hear. And yet, usually it's because he's saying something that's hard to understand. Most of the time it's in the context of him speaking a parable. But it also hints at the fact that It's not just a matter of your intellect and your ability to interpret literature that makes you able to understand these things. It's a matter of your heart condition. In Matthew chapter 11, in a parallel to a passage we visited two weeks ago when we saw Jesus talking about uh, the ministry of John the Baptist, he declared to the people, as Matthew records it, that John is Elijah who is to come. And then he said if you are willing to receive it, except let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. There he acknowledged that some people would not be able to understand or hear this or receive it, not just hearing it with their ears, but actually hearing it in a spiritual way where they receive it as a truth conveyed by Christ. Why? Because they would not be willing. There would be a heart problem within them. They wouldn't want to see, oh, John really is the fulfillment of the expectation that Elijah will come before the day of the Lord. And so too in our passage here, when Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, we should expect that it's not just a matter of the intellect, a matter of one's ability to interpret the parable with their mind, but it's also a matter of the heart, one's ability to receive it, because their heart is conditioned as good soil. And Jesus makes that clear when we come to verse 9 when he says to his disciples, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables. And here's the reason why that's true. So that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. In these words, Jesus is speaking from Isaiah chapter 6. And I'm going to turn there and read to you the context. You're welcome to turn there as well or just to listen as I read. I think it's a passage that's familiar to many of us. This is the call of Isaiah, his commissioning by the Lord as a prophet. And in Isaiah 6, verse 8, Isaiah conveys this. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And if we stop there, we think, wow, this is a great event. Here is the call of a missionary. He's going to go and do great things. But we read on. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste, without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth of it remain, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. Holy seed is its stump. And there in Isaiah chapter 6, The prophet found that his ministry would not be a very happy ministry. And he would preach to people. They would not hear. They would not listen. They would not understand. 
They would be confused by his words or they would reject his words. And this would be a judgment from the Lord. A judgment upon them. And we recoil against that naturally. We say, is that fair? Because that's what we're seeing here in Jesus' message. Jesus is essentially saying, I'm speaking in parables for the same reason why God sent Isaiah to speak in a message that people would not understand. It's a judgment. So they won't, they'll hear, but they won't really hear. Not with any kind of understanding. They'll see, but they won't really see. Not with any real perception. They'll think I'm talking about sowers and say, isn't that an interesting story? I wonder what it meant. But they won't receive it. And we wonder, is that fair? Why wouldn't God make the message plain so that everyone who hears it would receive it? And I say, has he not already? Has he not already made the message plain? Think first in Isaiah's context with the people of Israel. How much clearer can you be? Go all the way back to Exodus. God brings his people through the Red Sea. He parts the waters. He brings them to Sinai. And he says, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. And what do they do? Why don't we make some gods before the Lord? Why don't we make some idols? Right away. And all the way up to Isaiah's time. What do the people do? They fashion idols of their making. They hear the clear word of the Lord and they say, eh, I think that the uh, nations around us, they've got it. They've got it right. They know what they're doing. Maybe we should worship the Baals instead. And they craft idols, blocks of wood and stone. In Psalm 135, the psalmist writes this in verse 15 through 18. The idols of the nations are silver and gold. The work of human hands, they have, no, they have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Idols are blind and deaf and dumb and impotent. They can do nothing, and a person should be able to see this. But what does the psalmist say after this? Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Part of the way in which God judged unrepentant Israel, both in the time of Isaiah and in the time of, the Christ, of Christ, is by permitting them to become blind and deaf to his word, like the idols they worshipped. And it's true that in the time of Christ, the people did not overtly worship idols. But many of the crowds came and saw Christ's ministry. They saw his mighty deeds. No less powerful. No less amazing than what God did when he brought the people of Israel through the Red Sea. Or all of his other mighty works in the presence of the people of Israel. As he sent them prophet after prophet. Elijah and Elisha. And many others. And yet, they did not believe. And to not believe in the one true God is the same as turning to idols. We may put in a, the place of an idol ourselves or something that we love, but it is still idolatry. It was idolatry in the day of Christ. And it's idolatry in our day. When we do not have the fear of the Lord, when we do not begin there with a heart that is disposed to God's word, with repentance that recognizes, I'm a sinner, like that woman who came... In Luke chapter 7, and washed Jesus' feet. 
And yet, here is one who can save. Here is one who can forgive me. Here is one who can change me. If I don't have that foundation, God will make no saving wisdom available to me until I first have that soil, that good soil within my heart. It begins with responding to the thing that he has made clear. This too, of course, is a grace of God whereby he works in our heart to cause us to be born again so that we do have such a heart. So always we give thanks to our maker who works in us to this end. And yet he uses means to bring us to that kind of repentance. And one of the means that he uses is a very clear proclamation of the gospel. You must repent of your sin and believe in Christ to be saved. It cannot get clearer than that. He died for our sins. God raised him from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He reigns on high and he will return again. We are to believe in him with repentance and faith. For those who simply like to see a miracle, wanted to see a mighty work, or thought it was interesting that this man spoke in these strange ways and also sometimes gave them a free meal, God's wisdom did not come to them. From them it was concealed in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. But by his grace to his disciples, he said, to you it has been given, not because you're so learned and you're so wise and you're so smart or you're so good. Simply, it has been given to you. It's a grace of the Lord to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. And in this particular parable, the secret that he makes known is how the kingdom of God comes through the preaching of the word, even as we see that many do not respond to it. The parable is this, Jesus says, the seed is the word of God. And the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts. We wonder, well, how... Does the devil come and take away the word from their hearts? This evening we will continue our study in 1 Thessalonians. And in 1 Thessalonians we're going to soon see this week or next how Satan hindered Paul's work as he sought to spread the gospel. There in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 18, he talks about how he wanted to come back to the Thessalonians, saying, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Sometimes Satan works in such a way where he hinders the proclamation of the gospel. Maybe through intense persecution. We prayed this morning for the nation of Brunei. The laws are intense in that place. They are strongly opposed as a government to the preaching of the gospel. And it makes it really hard. And this is the work of Satan. There are other ways, certainly, that Satan can come and take away the word so that someone might not receive it and believe it and be saved. In our, in our culture, most notably, I suggest, it's through distraction. Look at your phone. Look at your computer. Look at your television. Look at the entertainments in your life. There's something that's more interesting than this guy who jabbers on and on. And can we not get to lunch Isn't that not what Satan speaks to our hearts so that we forget it, so that we cease to listen? 
It's the way that Satan works in order to distract us so that we might not receive God's word. But Satan is on a leash and God is in control. He overcomes the work of Satan. For those whom he calls, the seed will be planted in good soil. We need not despair at this fact that Satan can come and take away the word preached. We merely ought to trust that it's the Lord who ultimately works to overcome the work of the devil. And so that's the seed that falls on the path. It gets trampled underfoot, and it gets taken away by the devil. And he has all sorts of means by which he might accomplish this. He has many disguises. He has many methods. And yet at the end of the day, it's him who seeks to prevent men and women from hearing the word and believing it so that they might be saved. But it's not the only way that people fail to receive the word with faith. Sometimes the seed falls on the rock, that is, a kind of a soil that had a, a thin layer of topsoil, but limestone underneath. It can't send down roots. It can't draw moisture from the soil. And you can't see it at first, that it's not good soil. That plant sprouts up very quickly, but it won't grow into anything that produces any kind of fruit. When the sun comes out, or when some kind of, uh, some kind of trouble comes, or the farmer comes to weed the gravel, in his porch, he'll pull it up. It'll fall away. And that's the picture of what happens so often when people who initially receive the word of the gospel with joy find out that this Christian life is not really what I signed up for. They face persecution. They face opposition from family or friends. They say, no thanks. It's not what I thought this was all about. Again, in our culture... This doesn't most frequently come because we're so intensely persecuted. It comes very often because many preach a false gospel that we're to experience all the benefits of our salvation here and now. You want to get rich? Believe in Jesus and the money will flow into your bank account. And that's a lie. But it predisposes us to think that when we enter the Christian life and we find that it's not so great, it's full of difficulty, that Somehow the word of God has failed and maybe I should go and look elsewhere for that full, abundant life that I was promised. Maybe we just form our own expectations that are rooted in his word, but maybe a little misguided. We think that we receive the word and we're going to go out and we're going to preach the gospel and we're going to be the kind of person that they write biographies about in the future. We're going to win thousands of converts or maybe go to some deep missionary jungle. This jungle is a missionary and and, and convert all these tribes, and we find that it's actually tough going. We're sowing the seed, and lots of seed has fallen on rocky ground, and lots of seed has fallen in thorny ground, and lots of birds are coming and eating the seed. It's not seeming to be what we signed up for. And some have that experience, and they have that initial joy. But they don't persevere because they don't have roots They're not rooted in God's word, and they're not rooted in Christ. At the end of the day, their roots are in themselves, and what they can have, and what they can achieve, and that's like rocky ground. There's no moisture. There's nothing to nourish the plant. And so some receive the word, but don't hold it fast. Others 
are like the seed that fell among the thorns. They are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And what I want you to see is that this affects both rich and poor alike. There is anxiety that is the cares of life that can attend to not having your needs met, your needs met. And there is the anxiety that we see every day with persons with a seven and eight figure bank accounts and yet who worry about their retirement and whether they can sustain their, uh, their quality of life into old age. Worrying about every which thing and the cares and the riches and even comfort. Just sitting in the easy chair and taking it easy in this life. Those things can choke out faith so that a person does not grow and become fruitful as a believer. Now Luke doesn't tell us whether or not this second and third category of soil is the category of someone who has a genuine belief but a weak belief or a false belief. I think very clearly the rest of Scripture shows us that this is not genuine faith at all. You can look to James 2 and you see James says that faith without works is dead. Not because we somehow earn God's favor by doing good works, but because true faith produces good works. Like we saw in Luke 7 with the woman who washed Jesus' feet. Like we saw at the beginning of this passage with those who provided for him out of their means. They didn't earn his favor. They did it as a response to his grace. That was true faith. And we can also see that those who don't endure to the end don't have a real faith, an abiding faith, a true faith that would save them. We must endure to the end to be saved. We're taught that over and over again in Scripture. So I would say that these two soils, the second and third soil, they're not representative of true believers. But Luke leaves it a bit ambiguous, and I think because uh, we ought to reflect on this and say, I don't know about them, but I want to have certainty. I want to have certainty in my life. I want to have assurance in my life. I want to know that I'm good soil. And we can see the evidence that we're good soil that Jesus lays out there in verse 15. In the good soil, there are those who hear the word. They hold it fast in an honest and good heart. And they bear fruit with patience. They have a sincere faith. They receive the word really and truly, not just in their minds, but in their heart, which combines the thoughts and the emotions, the will that is, what we will in all our being. We're committed to this really and truly. And the other side of that evidence is that we patiently endure all sorts of trials in a way that is fruitful, not as people who produce the fruit on our own. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, when he speaks about his own ministry, I planted, Apollos watered, but it is God who gives the growth. It is God who produces the fruit in us. And yet this is a mark that assures us that we are good soil. But how can we know that we're good soil? Or, put another way, how can we ensure that we might be good soil? Of course, all glory and thanks is due to God. But he does show us the means. And it ultimately comes back to that, the response to that clear message. The repentance and faith that we are called to again and again. It is not an accident that God sent John the Baptist preaching a message of repentance before the Christ came. 
It was not an arbitrary sign by which he signaled the coming of the Christ. It was necessary because God declares that he is the one who dwells in heaven on high, in the high and holy places, and also with the one who is humble and contrite in heart. He loves to come to the person who humbles himself before an almighty holy God by recognizing that he's a sinner in need of a Savior. It always begins with repentance and faith. Wisdom always comes when we begin and rest upon that fear of the Lord that issues forth in these sentiments, in these actions of repentance and faith. That is the character of an honest and good heart that we must have if we're to receive the saving wisdom that we are given in Christ and the secret wisdom of the kingdom of God that he reveals to us through his word. Let me very briefly deal with these Proverbs at the end of this passage. They can be confusing, but they help us to understand what we're seeing in the parables. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. It's a principle that Jesus uses often in his ministry in different contexts with slightly different nuances. In Matthew 5.15, it's a way that a principle he uses to encourage us to be bold in letting our light shine before others and holding forth the gospel and holding forth our hope in Christ. But here he uses it to a different effect. He adds in verse 17, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Here the secret things are the secrets of the kingdom that Jesus is making known, that the kingdom is coming through the proclamation of the word as people receive it by faith. But all along the way, many are going to fail to receive it in any kind of enduring way. And yet this is how the kingdom is coming in, not with swords, not with armies. It's coming through the proclamation of God's word, through his mighty work as he causes the gospel to go forth. And that secret will one day be seen. This hidden thing will be made manifest to all, finally and fully, when Christ comes again. And we see his kingdom in its fullness. But until that day, Jesus assures us as disciples with the knowledge that this will indeed come to pass. For just as no one lights a lamp and then puts a bowl over it, puts a jar over it, or puts it under the couch, so too, God has not hidden anything that he will not make known. And the following consequence, the one application I give to you then, is take care then how you hear, just as Jesus says it. Take care how you hear God's word. Don't hear it like all of those soils that failed to receive it, but hear it like the good soil. Why? For the one who has... To him more will be given. And who is it in this passage that has and receives? It's Jesus' disciples who receive the secrets of the kingdom from Christ, who have faith and are now receiving wisdom as the Lord opens the treasuries of wisdom to them. But who is it that think that they have? It's the would-be followers who will fall away. It's the scribes and Pharisees that we've seen in the first seven chapters of Luke's gospel who think that they have in themselves a righteousness of their own, who think that they have in themselves a wisdom of their own, even what they think they have on that day when all the secret things come to light, even that will be taken away. And so as we look forward to that day, 
Jesus calls us to take care how we hear. We always begin, even as people who are already in Christ. We come to his word as people who know we deserve nothing from his hand and yet know that he is the God who is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness, abounding in mercy and loving kindness, who loves to show grace to those who humble themselves in repentance and faith. And so we come in this way as he's shown us to come in this way so that he might open to us the treasuries of wisdom as he opens it to us through Christ and through his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, O Lord, and we praise you, O Lord, that you are the giver of all good things, that with you reside all wisdom. For you, O Lord, are perfect in your wisdom. And we pray, Lord, that you would grant us wisdom, as you've promised, saying that you store up wisdom for the righteous. We are not righteous, but by faith you've declared us righteous, as you promised. So we pray, O Lord, that you would give us wisdom so that we might know the secrets of the kingdom of God and that we might understand the words that we hear in Scripture as you show them to us as we read and as we hear. We pray, O Lord, that you would work in us as well so that we might boldly hold it forth, that we might become people who sow the word, even as we have been soil who received the word implanted in our hearts. And for all, any who are here, who have not yet come to this saving faith, O Lord, I pray that you would work in their heart even now to make it a heart that is good soil to receive that seed, that it might grow and produce, that might, through patient endurance, prove fruitful. We pray this for all who are here, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.